Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast. This is Andy Fitzell, your co-host, alongside Steve Smith. Episode 38, this week, we're talking about Mr. Harry Hopman. Harry Hopman. It's going to be a history lesson today. Mr. Hopman. Yeah, let's go. I've done a lot of homework. Always Mr. Hopman because of respect. Mm. One of his players, Fred Stolle, who may have been in his doghouse the most because mm-hmm. of his sense of humor, <laughs> reported that Stolle would always crack the joke at the wrong time. Well, the, the time that was right for everyone but their leader, Mr. Hopman. Mm-hmm. Stolle, like so many people, summed up Mr. Hopman one word, respect. He commanded so much respect. We'll go through that. His record is yeah. winning ways. I thought to get into some history, start off with his track record, what his players accomplished is so amazing. But one nickname, they they were pushed, Captain Bly. Captain <laughs> Bly is part of the British Navy. He was uh, the captain. The book, the true story, Mutiny on the Bounty. The mutineers put their captain adrift in a dinghy. He drifted <laughs> for 3,000 miles. <laughs> he survived. The name was quite cle- clever. His players imagined putting Mr. Hopman to sea in a dinghy. <laughs> misery enjoys company and misery enjoys laughter. Captain Bly then 17 years later was assigned to Australia to deal with crime and corruption. <laughs> so his players, the inside joke was to strip Mr. Hopman of this command and send him adrift. They also teased that he would he would return, find out all about their escapades. <laughs> the Aussie boys had their fun. To them, beer was mother's milk. That's what they called it. Mother's milk. Keep in mind, we've got to go through this many, many years ago. Mr. Hopman controlled their pockets. There was no pro tennis. It really comes down to comparing it to today. Hmm. Um, there were no rich players. There was actually really no money. Lou Hode was one of his golden boys. Here's an example. And again, Harry controlled their purse strings as they represented Australia. Davis Cup. He would fine them for things like not wearing a sports jacket, having a few stubbles on their face, not shaving. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a story where Mr. Hopman's on the courtside bench. So he's there to be coaching Hopman, excuse me, Lou Hode. Who they called Popeye, so strong. Yeah, Two. I remember uh, Dick Braden telling me a story about Lou Hode picking up a player just with one arm. Yeah, and and holding note. him up that's, against the uh, locker. That's in my notes. He's reprimanded, reprimanding Hode during the match because he didn't shave. Yeah, with well, the story with that, Dick used to tell it all the time. He said that, you know, to him, Jack Kramer is the best player he ever saw play, mm-hmm. except for on a given day, Lou Hode was. But there was a, a drunk and he wasn't being very nice to that's right. a couple girls. And, yeah. uh, Ode picked him up by one arm, <laughs> yeah. and he carried him out and um, kept, you know, picked him up with his one arm and carried the never dropped, never let his beer down. Yeah, and he took the took the one guy outside and he said, "Hey, you're not behaving too well. Come back tomorrow." Yeah, you got to be uh, strong with those rackets. But our old, our library, lots of files, lots of notes. Throughout the present presentation, we'll share topics related to Mr. Hopman's coaching. Uh, coaching, coaching philosophy. I think maybe that's a good idea. Sorry, parents, but you know, we just strike a contract where you go, hey, if your kid misbehaves, it's five dollars for this, five dollars for this. You know, different infractions. Well, I think the difference is that they just today they just have mommy's plastic card. <laughs> They're just like, oh, no problem. Here you go. <laughs> do you have square? I do think. Sell Venmo. With, 
with what you're saying is uh, a lot of the principles though, that, that he stood for have gone away. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Hopman, one of our pillars, one of the pillars of the Great Base, um, he's one that I spent the least amount of time with. Um, but just, just in respect alone, but fitness would be another factor. Yeah. Um, when I think of a sports psychologist, you know, I compare people, I compare their work, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, to Jim Lair. With fitness, I always think of Hopman. Um, you know, we have kids come and visit it. And they tell us that they work with a fitness trainer twice a week and yeah, they can't do one push up. Yeah. From what I've heard, you know, it's not that he was so much a taskmaster. To me, it just sounds like he was really principled, you know, in all of his coaching. That it's not so much that he was, you know, this drill sergeant, although it may have come up that way to a lot of people, but just that he was really principled in everything that he did. Yeah. I would say today, um, you know, players is an argument where the players today would be stronger because of the knowledge for nutrition and fitness. But there's there's really no way that they're they're tougher. So the difference between being stronger physically and tougher mentally. Yeah. Um, top players today don't consider playing all three events at a major. Back in Mr. Hopman's day, the men, you know, they would play. And, you know, he was in charge of Davis Cup, so he primarily coached men mm-hmm. where um, singles, doubles, and mixed. You know, a lot of times today, and that's when money came into the game, very, very top players, marquee players, they just play singles. Yeah. There's many factors, though. I don't want to just beat up on the players of today by any means. It's the speed of the ball that you certainly can talk about, hard courts, mm-hmm. um, you know, before they played um, three of the four surfaces were on grass. The French being on red clay. His his players played thirty nine feet. They played from the baseline to the net. Yeah, trained to uh, be all court players. Go forward, pressure the players to miss. Uh, so facts: born in nineteen oh six, died in nineteen eighty five. Age of seventy nine, died of heart failure after spending the entire day on the tennis court. We had students at his place when he passed in nineteen eighty five. Throughout the presentation, you remember his life. I think listeners, he, he lived at a different time. Corporal punishment, for example, back in the day where you get paddled at school, you'd go home and get paddled for getting paddled. <laughs> um, fair enough, corporal punishment has been dropped, just like you know, people today. I don't think parents spank children like they used to. They used to do it in public. Did that ever happen to you? Um, getting paddled for getting paddled? No, no, but I uh, had the fear of it, though. <laughs> had the fear of it. Even I had a with, few hairbrushes broken, broken across my the, uh, my father. Area. My father could just do it through his voice. Mm. Uh, grew up at a different time, coached at a different time, but there's a thousand lessons that could be learned. One of the reasons Aussies are tough, certainly we'll go through the legend of uh, Mr. Hopman, but one thing to say is the Australia, Australia is so far away and they traveled and they traveled together. And you're, you know, Aussies, for example, you know, they would go to Europe for the entire clay court season. Mm. I think of a lot of US ATP players, last couple of decades, they complain about the length of the red clay court season. So they may skip the clay mm-hmm. for a number of reasons, you know, cut the clay court season short. Um, I know a lot of American players will go to Europe, say play two weeks, come home for a week, and then go back. 
back in the day, they would never, ever think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, he entered the Hall of Fame in 1978. Small in stature, bigger than life, five foot seven. What I was he inducted for? As a contributor or? Other uh, category would be builder. Builder. Just yeah. like Ball, just like Ball Terry or Hob, yeah. um, Braden. And now this year, upcoming uh, Vandermeer. Yeah. But a very small man, 5'7", but I don't think anyone, small in stature, bigger than life, don't think everyone ever thought that Mr. Hoffman was short. Mm-hmm. Um, his achievements, bigger than life. Uh, his father was a headmaster. This is interesting. Can you imagine your father being the principal of your both your elementary school and then when he finally went to high school? Then his father <laughs> became the headmaster of the, <laughs> the high school he attended. It's like he would just go, stop following me. <laughs> Uh, you have to guess that that would would have been a factor to uh, uh, make Hopman the disciplinarian that he was. Started tennis late, almost thirteen. I don't think I've ever been around anyone who's commanded so much respect. Uh, he reached the finals of three Aussie Opens, nineteen thirty two. That's uh, he was considered the number six player in the world. Before forty years later, before there was the first official computer, mm-hmm. but there would be polls. Um, he won seven majors. He won two uh, Aussie doubles. He won four mixed and one mixed. He won four of those with his first wife, Nell Hall. She died of a tumor in 1968. So he was a player. A lot of times people don't even know that. Yeah. Um, Lost in four finals, other majors. Started coaching after World War II. Um, He was a captain and coach Australian Davis Cup team, 22 years. He won 16. That's amazing. 16. Here we go. 1972. Goes Zuntike. Let's hear you, German. Dankeschön. I always think a a wretched digress. I was riding a train in Germany. Yeah. Guy sneeze. And uh, I said, Gesundheit. And he said, Where are you from in America? Hey, where are you from in America? One word. 1972. Um, 1973, the Davis Cup format changed. It became a total knockout tournament. Up to 1972, the winner would wait. So just think, if you were your team won 16 times, mm-hmm. you didn't play any preliminary rounds. You just waited. Winners wait. Yeah. And you would wait for the, the challenging team. And that worked really well for Hopman because his players would just train more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Train more. Now, before... Um, before 73, only four countries won the Davis Cup. And they were all the uh, Grand Slam countries, U.S., Australia, France, and Britain. Mm. Um, Wimbledon was run the same way. Um, the, the winner would wait. The, person, the player who won the year, year before, they just waited for the challenger to get through the knockout matches. Um, lots and lots of time to train. It has changed. That always comes up about how tennis has improved so much because it's a global sport now. In 84, tennis returned to the Olympics as a demonstration sport. 88 became an official sport. I think people know that because of Graf winning the uh, Golden Grand Slam. She won all four majors. Yeah. Um, his players, uh, there's so many, but here's a dozen. Ken McGregor, Lou Hode, Ken Rosewall, Neil Frazier, John Newcomb. Red Stolly, Tony Roach, Roy Emerson, Ashley Cooper, Rex Hartwig, Irvin Rose, and Mally Anderson. Um, 
I, I saw 10 of the 12 of them play. You know, some of them, it was when they played as seniors, the uh, Grand Masters Tour. My first racket was a McGregor. And McGregor. <laughs> yeah. Um, most of the uh, dozen that were mentioned coached. Um, I tell stories about so many of these gentlemen from a coaching standpoint. Mervyn Rose, Billie Jean King one time, she traveled all the way to Australia to work with Mervyn Rose on her forehand. Yeah. And that was back in the day when people had continental grips and she had to roll the racket from open to vertical to close. Yeah. And you know, she was so clever. She came back, she told everybody, my forehand is so much yeah. better. My forehand's awesome. And, and she was just <laughs> bluffing everybody, my forehand, my forehand. <laughs> with uh, Marty Mulligan, someone who everyone really likes. He's been Mr. Fila for a long time. Hoffman mm -hmm. telling him that he wasn't going to be able to cut it. He wasn't going to be able to be good enough to make the Davis Cup squad. I mean, he was good enough to go five sets with Rod Laver the year uh, 69 when Laver won the Grand Slam the second time. Mm. But this is very, was very common. It's still done. Um, but Marty just became Marty Mulligino and he played for Italy. <laughs> yeah. um, with, he, you know, you still see, um, see him at tournaments. He's, you name a player who uh, wears yeah. Vila and they know Marty Mulligan. Yeah. One time was, um, Leo Lavalle was training coaches at um, Andy Roddick. It was actually, it wasn't Andy Roddick. It was the Roddick Tennis Academy. But at one time it became Roddick Lavalle, great Mexican player. And I showed some film of Laver. And uh, Laver was being interviewed and he said, uh, I was so lucky to get past Marty. And Leo said, play that back, play it back. And I played it back. It was a, it was a great story for humility. He goes, I've known Marty forever, for decades, and I never knew he played tennis. <laughs> he, he was a world-class tennis player. Yeah. Bob Hewitt, I can remember asking Fred Stolle this. Bob Hewitt was one of the best double players in the world. He played, he played for South Africa, but he was an Australian. Hopman didn't like his character. Um, years later, I mean, he, he was, I mean, house arrest. He was convicted for sex crimes. He was been with with uh take withdrawn uh, his name's pulled from the international tennis hall of fame mm -hmm. um, the aussies would tease and say hopman didn't like him because he didn't drink beer can't be trusted if you don't drink beer mm -hmm. part of the aussie code but he was one of the best doubles players and i was just curious well, you know why would someone be that good not play you know for australia mm. um Mr. Hopman, uh, playing for your country was everything. Tennis back then, it was an amateur sport. It was called shamateurism because the only money was under the table. Mm. The top players would be given um, by the racket companies or the string companies, they'd be given so much product and they would actually sell right. sell rackets for, for pocket money. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine the players, one of the reasons they played all three events is when they would go to tournaments, um, it would help them because the meals were free once you're knocked out of the, knocked out of the tournament. Yeah. Another reason why they played all three, right? Yeah. That's interesting. If you're a big time player and you're play, you're at a place like Indian Wells and your main draw and you're 
you're a coach with a player, you know this, is you can have your the coach the player can have a car yeah. or they can have a chauffeur basically and you stay in a beautiful hotel but if you're with a qualifier you stay in a so-so hotel and your your meal money's cut off after one day but if you're in the main drive you can stay as long as you want you eat as long as you want with what well, that's the money comes back to it's one of the reasons that there's a Hopman cup that um Roger Federer said to his, uh, excuse, I should say, um, we'll talk about the Hopman Cup. Why there's the Labor Cup yeah. is uh, Roger Federer said to his agent, Tony Gotsik, I, I make more money in one exhibition than Rod Laver played, made in his whole career. Yeah. But Federer, you have to give his parents credit for, for principles because, you know, obviously he's been around money in tennis. I mean, you know, he cracked it. He's a billionaire at this point. The barnstorming days, there was pro tennis, and Jack Kramer and Harry Hopman, they used to butt heads because Hopman wanted his players to remain as amateurs because yeah. he wanted to keep the machine rolling. He wanted to keep winning uh, Davis Cup mm. titles. And so it's interesting to think about the barnstorming days. You could take, say, Federer and Nadal or Djokovic. And if they just played, they just, you know, say the, like a, a Jack Kramer and a Don Budge or Jack Kramer and Bobby Riggs, they they played, and Gonzalez was one of those players, they would play 100 matches. And they had a big truck and a bus, and the two vehicles would go from one small city to the next. Yeah. Because uh, I really, it's disappointing when you watch pro tennis on TV and during the early rounds in the week, you see the stands are empty. But when it comes yeah. down to the, the weekend, the marquee players, um, you know, many times the stands are, are packed. Yeah, I always would have thought that tournament directors would just allow the ticket holders just to come sit down close just for the TV, just to make it look like there's a packed house, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, tennis became a pro sport in um, 1968. And there's, you know, some quotes I have to round this off at the end of my notes. But to me, it it, it sounds so much like the former Soviet Union, the USSR, the the big red machine. Um, obviously, the <clears throat> the Aussies had their freedom, but yet it was just so controlled because um, you know they didn't have the the funds to go here and funds to go there, and mm. um, but. They were also happy to be playing the Grand Slams and representing Australia. Yeah. Uh, Hopman was a journalist, age of 27. He was still playing, and he wrote for the Melbourne Herald. He would write daily. It wasn't just writing about the players and and, uh, writing about championships. He wrote about practice on a daily basis, and the motive was to let young Youngsters throughout Australia know exactly what it would take to, pl- to become great and to represent the colors, represent the Australian flag. Be great to uh, get copies of those. Yeah, it, the uh, saw that. I was like, man, be awesome to have. With I'm sure, there's um, somewhere some kind of archive. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, we certainly. If anybody listening, if you can find that, send it to us. Info at greatbasetennis.com. 
things written by Mr. Hoffman. We'll, we'll go through it. Yes, uh, he wrote two books. Uh, second one, one wrote in '57. I've got um, '75 and '78, but '75 and '78. The 75 book was uh, Lobbying in the Sun, changed the title, um, but it put the name Harry Hopman in the title of the, the, the reprint. Yeah. So you just sell more books. Um, with coaches back in the day were hobby coaches. It wasn't, you know, tennis has boomed, it's become big business. Yeah. But uh, someone like Mr. Hopman, you know, his proper job is to work as a, as a journalist with Harry. We talked about Peter Burwash. He did the same thing on a lesser scale to help travel the, the world. He wrote for tennis world magazine. Right. Uh, but Hoffman was definitely a planner. Def- definitely um, had a vision in his words. He knew there would be nothing, nothing left of the chase once, um, Tennis turned to be a pro sport, chasing the Davis Cup. Mm. The Davis Cup was going to be number two, and money was going to be number one. Um, so what happened is he came to the United States in 1969. So he, you know, he fell out with uh, Australian tennis authorities because of how they were distributing money after '68, mm. and then he came to the United States and um, he ran his own business. Remember, his wife died in '68. He remarried in '71. Second wife's Lucy, former, former Lucy Pope. And then Lucy married the, the Pope of tennis, the ruler of tennis, mm-hmm. especially down under. He moved to Long Island, Port Washington program. And in 74, he moved to, his operation to Florida. But we'll go through, uh, you know, the people, his lives he touched in that short time he was in New York. First he was in Treasure Island, then, then Bar- Broadmoor, and then Saddlebrook. Um, he was always a ball hopper guy. I don't want to down, down case the briefcase side of being a pro. So we, I save a ball hopper briefcase. There are some people who get older and they farm out the work. Yeah. He's and a trench guy. Yeah. Businessman, but, but, uh, never really removed himself from the court. Yeah. Some people do that. They just farm the workout. Yeah. So that's where I say, you know, capitalism's not perfect. Um, People wanted to train like pros. They wanted to train like the Aussies. So that was his prop product, and he delivered his product. You know, it'd be interesting to watch his his tennis camp in the wintertime and adults, you know, unfit adults, <laughs> scaled down slightly, but it was like they needed to have an ambulance courtside because of the way they worked. Uh, Tony Palafox, he worked for Mr. Hopman in New York. Um, he worked privately with McEnroe. You know, the great, the best doubles team in the world. People have heard that line, John McEnroe and anyone. Yeah. With uh, Palafax won the U.S. Open doubles, Wimbledon doubles. But the, here are some names of people that um, Hopman worked with in New York. John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolaitis, Peter Rennert. Uh, he was 40 in the world. Mary Carrillo, 33 in the world. She won uh, the French mixed with McEnroe. Um, there was Sandy and Jean Mayer, top 10 in the world. Yeah. They were taught by their dad, Dr. Mayer, but, uh, and they were like Peter Fleming, who became McEnroe's partner. They were New Jersey, but 
that New Jersey, New York area, pretty close. Mm-hmm. So to attend camps. Um, so it's six of those players, top 10 in the world, seven Grand Slams. Um, I remember being told, I could not confirm this with no taking, but that Dick Stockton, New York, New York guy, he's a top 10 player in the world, that he also, uh, you know, you can, and you go back, I have this down, how old these players were when Hotman was there. So McEnroe, when he was 12, and you know, a 12-year-old is so young, so impressionable to start working with Mr. Hopman. And just, okay, this guy worked with the likes of Rosewall and Newcomb and Laver and won so many Davis Cups. Yeah. Um, with Mr. Hopman showed up in New York, uh, people knew his accomplishments. The McEnroe family, they were so influenced by Mr. Hopman. Mr. Hopman, obviously, the love of Davis Cup. So the McEnroe family had great appreciation for, for Davis Cup. Three boys, but so it's John, Mark, and Patrick. Patrick, the youngest, he's starting to play well. But they were the McEnroe family, the parents, they weren't sure if uh, Patrick was going to be able to be good enough to play for the U.S., mm-hmm. the U.S. Davis Cup. So Irish-Americans, Patrick went to uh, Ireland. Fitzwilliams, in that day, Fitzwilliams was played on grass, real grass. Now it's on artificial grass. Patrick won the national junior championships of Ireland. And they did that with the idea that he could play Davis cup for Ireland. Mm. Um, he was good enough. Uh, he, well, he, he won a major playing doubles. I see you know, people know his, his background. He's so much in the limelight, but yeah. you know, as far as playing at Stanford and then playing on the tour, um, you know, he, Got to the semis one time of Australia, so I mean, he's a very good tennis player. But he didn't play for Ireland. My uh, former wife is from Ireland. Uh, my son Connor, uh, I sent him um, actually to do the same thing. He played in the yeah. Irish Junior Championships. He lost in the finals. Um, Remember that it was on um, artificial grass. The but so Connor, we got to be two hundred in the world, and Connor Nyland uh, asked Connor. To play for David, to play for Ireland, and I think that's very common in the United States. To have someone at that age say, "Well, it's your choice," but I mean, he was making the decision after he was in college, and I think it would have been a good thing. But um, I think it's a positive too. They said, "Well, gee, you know, the dream. Maybe one day I could play doubles for the U.S." Mm-hmm. Um, so he didn't take the Irish, the Irish up on their offer, and he would have at, at two hundred in the world. I mean, Ireland's a an island with what four million people. Um, he, um, yeah, I think it would have been interesting if he had played. Let's see. Um, yeah. The kangaroo Hopman's got the best logo in tennis. I love the Hopman logo. It's a kangaroo hanging onto a tennis racket, the circle of flags, mm-hmm. and I think that really respects uh, or shows the respect for Hopman's uh, international success. So McEnroe was born in 59, Hopman's in New York in 69. So you think 11, 12 years old. Um, the, other, the other players I mentioned, Peter Renner, same age, but um, like Mary Carrillo, a couple years older, San and Jeannie, uh, Jean Mayer. Um, so just like say Rod Laver worked with the Aussie coach that people should know more about, Charlie Hollis. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like 
um, Hopman was starting players as beginners. You know, he was, I'd say, um, more of the the role of the trainer. Yeah. There's a teacher, there's a trainer. And then you, and you have to honor both. Uh, let's go more with some records here. 1950s, 40 majors. So you think four majors per year. Mm. The Aussies won 21. They won eight of 10 Aussies. Now, the, the Australian Open used to be played in December. And you know, I think people take shots, uh, you know, maybe too disrespectful to Margaret Court's record. But, I mean, it is true that the Australian Open was basically all Australians. Um, yeah, people so, just didn't make the trip. Yeah. At one point, you used to take Americans 22 days by boat to go to Australia. <laughs> with, but so of the 21 wins, eight out of 10 Aussies, three out of 10 French. That was the weak link with the Aussies playing on the red clay, but four of 10 Wimbledons, six of 10 US Opens. Men's doubles during the 1950s, they won 32 of 40. 10 out of 10 Aussie titles, seven out of 10 French, eight out of 10 Wimbledon, um, seven out of 10 US Opens. So again, three out of the four on grass, Clay. Clay wasn't their best service, but the Rod Laver with his two brothers, they had their own sand court. They went from one sand pile to the next with right. a wheelbarrow, a couple of shovels, and, yeah. and they hills. had a sand court. Um, so yeah, tennis has boomed since the Olympics in, in Eastern Europe. There's other parts of the world, parts of Asia right now that tennis is booming. But in Australia, it's interesting, you know, think of uh, the United States. Is tennis really a countryfied sport? Uh, like say in Canada, we've talked about Canadian tennis, city-fied, where hockey is a countryfied sport. It's played everywhere in Canada. Mm. But um, in Australia, back in the heyday, tennis was played everywhere and played in the schools. And that's one of the reasons they did so well in doubles is that so many people are playing tennis. They, they spent more time playing doubles than singles. Right. <laughs> uh, let's go through my connection with Hopman. I never worked for him. I was never on his payroll. Um, with, I lived in the greater Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater for 15 years. If I had a penny for every pro told me that they work for Mr. Hopman, I got this written down. I could buy a beer. Uh, I could I pick up the tap for a, a bunch of a bunch of Aussies drinking beer every night. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a lot of that's a lot of beer. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Meyer, Meyer worked for All American Sports at Amherst College, a beautiful school in Western Mass. Uh, high, high acclaimed high academically. With they had a bunch of tennis courts. They had red clay courts. It's interesting tennis teaching history. Hopman and Volteri worked at the same camp. Mm -hmm. Hopman was in charge of the juniors, and Volteri in charge of the adults. And I I heard so many great things about Ronnie Meyer. So I I found a week to go and volunteer. I was working for the same company, um, but my assignment camp I was part of, uh, it went say 10 weeks and his camp went 12 weeks. So I went to work for him. And I remember just asking, I think most people ask is that, Hey, if there was a conflict, those two guys went in the room, <laughs> uh, who, who was, uh, who was winning the conflict? And it was, it was Hobbin <laughs> with, um, later also who worked for uh, all American sports was, uh, 
Andy Brandy and Joe Brandy. But, but through the three of them, I had the, uh, the privilege of just being able to rock up and observe. Mm. It was really more through uh, Joe Brandy was at, at Hotman's first and Andy Brandy's second. But the, as I got to um, know Andy, I worked for him. Briefly worked for his brother one summer. St- Stowe, Vermont, top notch. Do you remember the first time that you watched Mr. Hopman work? Yeah, I've got the, the notes. Um, but with through my connection with uh, Andy Joe Brandy, I mean, to go and just be at Hopman's, there were so many world-class players. It was a fun place to just sit down and watch. But, you know, you, you, you want to have permission to be there. But then to be on the inside and ask some questions, what's going on? Yeah. No, the first time I saw him work with a group of players – and keep in mind, by the time I met him in the '70s, you can do the math. I mean, it certainly was more of a, more than a snapshot. Um, I think a book a book should be written on Hopman, you know, so people don't forget um, the impact he had on the game. I think federations would be wise to say, okay, we're going to. And, and most of the people that um, have would have something to say would be in their '60s. Mm. Instead of just a uh, shallow report, oh, they worked so hard, he was so tough. Yeah, but they just go through, um, you know, how it could impact and make make our game better today. But he was working with a group of girls from the Netherlands. So he, what he would do, and I think this is what tennis directors should do: is he patrolled the courts in his golf cart, and he would stop and get the courts moving. If it was, you know, a rookie coach, someone new to the uh, the program or didn't feed the ball so well, but he, he went out on the court with a group of girls from the Netherlands and they were doing overheads and the lobs were so deep and they'd run up, touch the net, he'd feed a lob. But the respect, again, you'll say that word a thousand times. Mm. They worked so hard. It was like, no one was hitting a ball, but they were jumping scissor kick overheads and just go, go, go. And, um, I mean, there's shadow swinging. The balls were being fed. I mean, I can remember. Uh, but no one was hitting the ball. No one was reaching the ball, you're saying. Exactly. No one was reaching the ball. I think yeah, of. Uh, they were trying. Leonard Berglund watching him feed lobs to Bjorn Borg. Um, you know, we have kids feed bo- lobs to kids all the time. Yeah. And um, with uh, yeah, just not even feeding the ball past the service line. Yeah. So I was a hockey player. I, I mean, I got into tennis in 74. Um, but when I got into tennis, I mean, everybody who would be reading anything would, would know about Mr. Hopman. Mm-hmm. But it really took me three years to the point where I started playing tournaments and I would be on the, you know, I was b- based over in Boca. I was a perennial tennis bomb of Boca, Boca Raton, on the East Coast. And then Hopman was on the West Coast. But to just be able to go over and observe, um, there were so many ATP and WTA players practicing. Definitely a fun place to drop into. Uh, the The latter five years of my tennis bum days, I was living in a van, so that made it a little bit flexible to yeah. to rock up and 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 watch. Uh, <laughs> with you know, I would encourage young people who want to get into tennis to take the role of the starving artist. 
I've had so many young people look at me cross-eyed and I said, why don't you do this? Why don't you get a job nights? I think it's a great thing. People have to support them. Why don't you get a job at night? You know, you can be a bartender or wait on tables and then you can uh, do so many different things during the course of the day. Yeah. Uh, when it comes down to putting yourself in position to really learn in tennis. Hopman was the first on the West Coast before Balteri. I mean, I have great respect for Nick. I I stop and correct. Uh, I think I'm old enough to do that. I stop and correct. I hear all your tennis parents say, well, Balteri, you know, da-da-da-da about technique. And I go, you know, if you haven't, uh, you know, if you haven't been courtside, I mean, you know, yeah. You gotta. You can't go by hearsay. Someone tells you it's a lousy movie. I think you really, in the end, you know, you know it's a lousy movie if you've seen it yourself. Yeah. Um, Balotelli is no stranger to all levels of tennis. When he was on the East Coast, he was really young. He worked with Brian Godfrey in his former years. Godfrey was a top tennis player in the world, top ten. I think he was number three. Well, this is what the Aussies would do with a young player. Um, like Nick did this with Brian Godfrey. He said, hey, kid, come to my lessons for the next eight hours. Mm-hmm. And Brian Godfrey's legendary, his work ethic. And so the Aussies, you know, they're say you're given a lesson and you're feeding a ball to Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo, Sally, and or Ralph, whoever. And uh, they're, they're trying to hit their forehand down the line. And the junior's there knocking the volley yeah. off. Yeah. They can help demonstrate, help pick up some balls. You know, they can serve as a hitter, but you don't really see that in the U.S. I and mean, someone has a private, it's one-on-one. Yeah. But you can always bring a top uh, top junior, a hungry dog on the court. But before Hopman, well, Hopman was there, so he goes to Florida 74. Nick, 78, 79, he's at the Colony, and he starts his academy. But prior to that, for years, Nick was in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and he taught adults. I mean, if you went through a magazine from the 70s, his coach's uh, sleeveless T-shirts before anybody wore sleeveless yeah. T-shirts. Mustache, I can remember. Mustache. <laughs> the mustache. Yeah, the look. They all wore the beads around their neck, no socks. Mm. Um, with, <laughs> but, and this is not to take anything away from Balotelli's. Initially, Balotelli's, uh, when he started the academy business, it basically was a copy of the Hopman model. Um, you know, Hopman's was the first boot camp, and I think that is a a positive way to define it. Um, you know, so basically, he took his Davis, his Australian Davis Cup model, to Florida, but it was a few few years in between in New York. Um, the you know, this is you've already asked me this. These Dutch girls, um, with with uh. The, the way that he would feed balls. I, I think of uh, Robert Landstor, the way he feeds balls. But Hopman would drive a ball flat, heavy slice, heavy top. Um, you know, I've got some definite to, to notes on um, um, more on the feeding. Mm-hmm. But again, the joke was, yeah, there needs to be an ambulance. There needs to be an oxygen tank because people would work so hard. Mm-hmm. People loved to be assigned to ball pickup. With Hopman the drills kept moving. It wasn't like everybody picked balls up. One person would pick a ball up at a time. A mm-hmm. um, lot of live ball, uh, two players at the net, one player moving side to side, mm-hmm. 
four people on a court. Um, in Florida, there's basically two seasons. Okay, there's the winter and the summer. <laughs> Choose your poison. People are from the, the Northeast or the Midwest. The poison is the winter months. Yeah. Here in Florida, it's the summer months where the heat, humidity, yeah. intensity of the sun. But back in the day, there was no homeschool. And kids, for the most part, just took private lessons. In the summer, there would be summer camps. Consumers should know that, you know, a place like Nick Baltieri's today, or now Mr. Hopman's, I think is sad that Saddlebrook, and to me it should still be called Hopman's, mm. that uh, it's, it's really like tournament players are there during the school year and summer campers. So that's, it's just interesting. Um, but in 1981, um, when I set up a program, revised a general recreation curriculum and a tennis teaching program, and then Andy Brandy and Joe Brandy, uh, my connection with them, Harry Hopman started hiring summer coaches with that were, that were part of our program. Mm. I remember PK Das really early on when I uh, revised this program from a, um, you know, it was just one, one class a semester. You had the option of taking a tennis class, but then it was, became a full-fledged uh, comprehensive tennis curriculum. So he, he was the first, but there's so many others after that. With then during the winter, uh, during the semester break, which they almost have a month, that's when his business would increase because kids would be out of school and people would go to Florida to train mm. Mr. Hopman's. So we would have students work for Mr. Hopman in the summer and we'd have students work for him during the semester break, internships, mm. we called those summer jobs and then internships. But when the students would return, they'd have to have a journal. They'd be challenged to make a classroom presentation and then an encore presentation. That was a lot of work. When young, we had over 100 students with the largest enrollment, mm. and people would leave for the summer. It was just a two-year program, so they had one summer where it was an internship. Yeah, and they would come back, and they'd have to have make two 45-minute present presentations. Uh, with of all the famous people that I've met in tennis, Mr. Hopman, and it wasn't you know, a casual phone call. But when he would call me up, I would just stop in my tracks and go, <laughs> Harry Hobman just called me up. <laughs> um, I mean, no, the international success like no other. Um, Tennis Australia, you know, for what they did in the 50s and 60s, I think they'll always have the title, best tennis nation ever, with the accomplishment of what the players did under yeah. him. So many people helped. I mentioned Charlie Hollis. Um, so, you know, and Hoppin wasn't, you know, a, pro, a promoter, a, a marketing person. Um, you know, it, it was like the results spoke for themselves. You know, it's like, okay, we're reading about his success in the newspaper and the magazines instead of, you know, writing, writing your own brochure and, you know, saying, okay, my, my mother put this together. I'm really awesome <laughs> with, um, I think it's someone like Charlie Hollis to me, there's a, there's a small group of people still trying to get him into the international hall of fame. For me, I think if you coach Rod Laver, you should be in the international tennis <laughs> hall of fame. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 
But Hopman would call me up for two reasons. One, to uh, thank me for um, uh, having students come and work for the summer. And um, I would just I would just be flattered. But the other call was really, um, how, you know, how many coaches he needed. What was, um, the, what was the general feedback usually from the students that would come back after working there for a summer? Well, I just think, um, you know, myself, I w- would say, okay, I'm, I'm an outsider. I was certainly connected, but it's not like I was there day in and day out by any means working, but just the intensity, the, the go, 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 you know, sunrise to sunset um, with um, the work ethic. Um, How do you think you would have handled cell phones these days? Not well, not well, <laughs> not well. I can remember uh, asking him, uh, you know, about some of the, our, some of our female students and like the tennis industry, our program for tennis teachers was 85, 90% male, but uh, he didn't have women work for him. Um, you know, his quick answer is, well, they're too emotional. And we did so much trouble for that today, mm. but um he, um, there was other reasons too, you know, as far as having, you know, four guys bunk in a one room apartment, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, Roland Yeager, he took an interest in our students. He coached at Hops. Um, his daughter, Andrea, became number two in the world. Um, mm-hmm. German immigrant boxer. They were in Chicago. Andrea Yeager, I mean, she was, she retired early and now she, she works, um, um, as a nun. I, she actually Lucy Hopman, when she passed away, proceeds went to Andrea Yeager's fund or Andrea Yeager's, uh, service where she helps young children that are cancer survivors. Mm. But I just remember Roland Yeager. I think that comes back to your question. He took an interest. In, I mean, I remember talking to him about the experience of our students going to, Hopman's, you know, he was just intrigued that, okay, they're studying tennis year round. How's that work? Mm. But um, to watch him work, I would say that watching Andre Yeager drill is like she would run around the world before she had to stop for a water break. Uh, the human spirit. Yeah. I, I do think with, uh, again, coming back to Hopman with fitness, um, many of his camps, you run five miles before the camp starts. There were some camps where he would say, okay, boys, and you know, these are young men. And he'd say, okay, I'm going to pick out the hardest worker for the day. They'd have two practice sessions. Mm-hmm. And the person who works the hardest will have a beer with me at the end of the second session. And everybody else runs 10 miles, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, 10 miles. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll get you going. Yeah. I really get stuck on that is I don't think you need to train over and over and over again. I know when I was a kid, LSD, long, slow distance. We, <laughs> we just got bad information as ice hockey players. Yeah, just just run in the summer. My parents lived on a lake, and I would beg to run around the lake. You know, even before I was a teenager. Yeah, and you know, you're not sports specific, but distance running will make someone mentally tough. Yeah, where you exactly. can just keep go and go and Your go. Everybody's going quit, stop. Yeah, no more. <laughs> the good guy, the bad guy, the angel, the devil. What are you doing? Yeah, stop. <laughs> uh, one thing with Hopman's success, the Vietnam War, the Aussies really had a leg up during the U.S. during the Vietnam War, which went on forever. 
uh, players like Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, they went to college. So again, that was uh, a factor because if, if young people dropped out of college, they had a greater chance of going to Vietnam. Mm. Smith and Ashe, they were officers in the army. Cliff Ritchie was an American who, like the Aussies, really started pursuing full-time tennis at an earlier age than the Americans at that time. Um, so more notes from the library. Um, our listeners have to realize a lot of the notes we have, they're hard copies. They were taken long before the computer age. Hardened, intense, taskmaster, unyielding his thought process, no compromises, obsessive about fitness. He himself was always fit. You know, I think it's really important that the coach can outwork the players, you know, the ever ready energy bunny. Yeah. You know, we, you know, tennis should not, any sport should not really be compared to war, but you know, and it doesn't have to be militant through just authoritative commands, but it's like, okay, this is our army. This is as a, as a group, this is our mission. And the players, you know, coming back to captain Bly is they thought they were treated like soldiers. That's what I'm saying. Everything's just really principled. Yeah. And, um, you know. No, no. Someone like Mr. Mr. Hopman, I think anybody who had a feel for it, he would roll over in his grave to see what's going on now. (laughs) With the, you know, now it's completely the opposite. In pro tennis, one of the reasons it's like the young player, the Ferrari from Bulgaria, Dimitriov. Seven coaches in seven years, his first seven years on the tour. Yeah. And, you know, so the coach is having a bad day. Um, you know, the coach is in charge. Players having a bad day, Player, you know, but when the player's in charge, so I remember seeing, hearing Luke Jensen saying this, if the player, if the coach tells the player, hey, go run 10 miles, what's going to happen is the player's going to fire the coach. <laughs> it, it's just, it's just, so so backward it's true in uh i say the nba the 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 marquee players you know who's going to go the coach or the marquee player yeah so things are back backwards upside down with few words he created the australian code the mantra respect show respect to everyone not the slightest evidence of bad behavior was the standard Discipline on court and on twenty four seven. Hopman no boundaries. He inspected every aspect of his player's life, with set rules, enforced rules, curfews, as I mentioned earlier, fines. I think with McEnroe, McEnroe's a young guy. The story is that he got kicked out of the program for a day. Hey, just like Lou Hode grabbing the uh, the drunk by uh, by the neck with this one arm. Yeah, and. Say three hours of overheads. So McEnroe, he was exposed to that as a young kid. We're just going to hit three hours overheads. Oh, my shoulder will be really sore. I'm going to get tendonitis. <laughs> People didn't even think like that. Um, I think. But that, I, I, I go ahead. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say for you know coaches out there listening. I mean, they have programs. I think it's really what's the saying where you get what you tolerate. You know, I just think if you if you have you know your, as far as your culture goes setting up a, a championship culture. It's like, you just can't, you can't tolerate the little things, you know, you, if you bend over, you know, the, cause kids are always going to, 
or I should say players, they're always going to kind of test the boundaries, right? And if you give a little or, you know, give an inch, they're going to take a lot. So you just have to set those principles and, and just stick with it and not, not tolerate any of the BS. Eric Hyden, Dr. Eric Hyden now, uh, gold medalist, uh, speed skater, goes to Stanford, and who's his roommate? John McEnroe. He, McEnroe asked Hyden to speak on his behalf when he was inducted to the Hall of Fame. And Hyden got up there and said, McEnroe is such a crybaby. I, Eric Hyden used to duck walk a mile every day, first thing in the morning, let's go duck walk a mile. I tell kids, we have kids duck walk from the, from the baseline to the net. I go, okay, we'll only do it once, so no, no, no mommies, no daddies going to call me up and tell me this is bad for your knees. Yeah, my knees. With, uh, but with uh, Hopman and the three-hour drills, I think of John uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, The Story of Success, The Story of Circumstance. Yeah. Um, would John McEnroe be John McEnroe if Harry Hopman you know, didn't go to New York um, for that period of time in his life? Um, Harry Hopman yeah. and Vic Braden were on a TV show. This is when I was on Vic's staff. And so it was over McEnroe's behavior. You, it was uh, Nightline News with Ted Koppel. Ted Koppel. And Vic, Vic made some critical comments about McEnroe's behavior. And I remember we, as a staff, we talked about it the next day. When Hopman said, in really McEnroe's defense, he said, it's the job of the umpires, and the umpires are not controlling the players. The umpires are not controlling McEnroe. The, ump- the umpires were failing. He proceeded to sing McEnroe's praises. He basically stated uh, decades before Malcolm Gladwell wrote his book that New Yorkers, New York, New Yorkers, they have the inner voice. With straightforward, you know, people say New York, New York brashness. Uh, it's environmental. Well, uh, go ahead. I was going to say later on, you know, Vic got into you know the eye mark recorder and did you know all those studies with the eyes, and he, they studied McEnroe's eyes. And when he would go into some of those tantrums later on, he would be looking over to see if he was reeling his opponent in. Really, so a lot of that I think started to become marketing. Um, not to say that maybe he wasn't upset with the call sometimes, but I think in the end he was trying to get under his opponent's skin sometimes and sometimes just give the people what they wanted to show. I think people that caught, later on. You, know, you think about, you know, with Gonzalez, Braden, he at one time, you know, Vic would say Bacan is down the line. I think Vic used to do that because Vic was yeah. you know, stage fright, a little shy. I mean, boy, what a great performer. So he would step up and. Gilbert still uses that. Yeah, Brad Gilbert does do that. It, he spells but, it too, B-A-C-H. <laughs> but um, Vic used to tell people that he spent so much time hanging out with Australians when he promoted the Pro Tour. Mm. With, coming back to brashness, um, two types of New Yorkers, Hicks and Slicks. Mm. So I'm a Hick, yeah, grew up right. 85 miles um, south of Montreal, born in Potsdam, New York. And with, um, you know, some kid is from Wisconsin and, you know, the cities are Milwaukee and Madison. I can remember being so shocked meeting people from New York City. Um, you know, regardless of one's political views, in the Aussies, um, with Donald Trump, Donald Trump, New York, New Yorker, brash. Mm-hmm. You know, people say bombastic, obnoxious, mm-hmm. but um, 
the Aussies, you know, we Americans sometimes we hear their lovely accent, but if you've ever worked with Aussies, and it's changed some, but straight shooters, right from the hip, no yeah. sh- no sugarcoating it, yeah, just no sugarcoating it, and um, yeah. So Vic, you know, the people from the Midwest, um, you know, it's like if you have years ago in junior tennis, some kid from the Midwest. Um, get myself in trouble here, but they're playing some kid from Miami or some kid from LA and the kid from the Midwest is all shucks. And it's so the kid from the Midwest will say, oh, what's the score? You need to know the score. I'm not accusing anybody of making bad calls, but <laughs> if the sucker on the other side of the net says, it's love 40. what's the score? Yeah. It's, <laughs> you're serving love 40. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the kid goes, Oh, okay. Oh, okay. With, um, yeah. but it was interesting down the road, ironically, McEnroe, when he finally got booted from a tournament, it was Australia. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, with um, told had told the umpire where to go. Uh, <laughs> Garolitis, um, he was my favorite commentator. That was so tragic that he died. I think he was just forty years old. Um, but yeah, I think so many commentators. I would even say McEnroe does that too much today. Is that um, not critical enough? I think Jimmy Arias. Uh, vote for the upstate New Yorker. Um, I heard him say about Shapovalov is that I love how he comes to the net. He doesn't know what to do when he gets up there. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, uh, but he's just, you know, so aggressive. Yeah. With, um, I'm, I'm, I'm saying too many ums. With my notes here, coach. With. Yeah, we were talking about Johnny Mac and New York and well, I think respect, yeah, you know, respect, um, you know, a police officer is a police officer. My father used to tell me not use the term cop. Um, are you a cop with, um, but you know, to respect who's in charge, so rules and regulations. Uh, so yeah, the, you know, McEnroe was allowed to, uh, act like McEnroe and it, the, but you know, Hopman's, you know, saw, saw positives in, in McEnroe that it, they, they were allowing him to do that. You know, you read about McEnroe and Jack Nicholson say, Hey kid, I like your act, keep it up. And he's like, okay, I guess I'll keep doing what, what I'm doing <laughs> Yeah, with, um, Paul McNamee. Um, he has a book called game changer. You want to find out a few things about, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Hopman, uh, McEnroe speaking to him, he wrote the forward to that book and, um, Magnum, totally overhauled his game. He got to the point, he had one-handed, backhand, he primarily sliced, and then he had a two-hander with top, and he got so he could stay back and win on dirt. With, um, so I, I do think that people would say, well, Mr. Hoppin, there was absolutely no teaching. I, I do think that the ten, people have to stop and think, okay, the tennis boom, so many people, they came in mm-hmm. to his school when he was in Florida, um, they had Treasure Island or, or Bardmore, and there's just a battery, just a, a slew of tennis courts. And, you know, you put four people in a court, you start pumping out balls. Yeah. And um, with uh, basics, you can get online. And there's very little to look at, but you can get online and, and see some demos where Harry Outman, he's doing movement, where very loose on the serve and short on the volleys and... Um, all of the tennis teachers during that time made the mistake of what was done on the forehand. Now it's extreme. It's gone the other way where people are, uh, you know, too far under 
but people would have a you know playing with a wooden racket. The best players played on grass. Yeah, they're going forward. Yeah, the best players spent hours and hours hitting on a backboard. Backboards are built straight up and down. They should be sloped back at a fifteen degree angle. Yeah, and um, so it's not like basics weren't taught, but people like McNamee would call him up and say, "Hey, you know what do we do? How do we uh, how do we play against this guy? What do you recommend?" So I think people undersell that, you know, Hopman was just drill, drill, drill. With, in, in McNamee's book, he talks about, he was icing one time and Japanese player, we well, just have to guess in the 80s, 70s, actually, that, okay, this guy from Japan, he doesn't speak English. He doesn't have a translator. But Mr. Hopman, the feeding was universal just to move him from, move him from side to side. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, Magnum, he goes, he, he fed over a hundred balls and the guy didn't touch one ball and, you know, just keeps stretching them. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about um, Robert Lansdorp where, you know, he does that, you know, give him 20, just cranks the ball and the player can hit down line cross court, but they have to hit over the service line. And if they, they miss, at 17, they got to go back to zero. And yeah. um, I remember watching him feed balls to Elliot Telsher, you know, so at that time, Elliot Telsher was on his way to be a millionaire. But um, Hopman's influence, you could say, definitely influenced the entire tennis world. Yeah, in the um, end, those kind of drills, I mean, yeah, okay, consistency, fitness, but it's the mental, just like running 10 miles, right? Where yeah, you just got to go, okay, I'm going to stick in here and I'm going to do it. So McNamee, um he played with Peter McNamara, who recently passed away. Um, you know, they, they won uh, you know, several Grand Slam doubles titles. Um, but McEnroe, in, in his forward, said he was shocked that he could change his game, be a pro, leave the tour, change his game, come back, and be, be, be better. Yeah. And McEnroe said he doesn't think it's happened since. Um, you know, we, we should uh, sometimes just talk about the history of tennis and what players made changes. Yeah. You know, like Tilden, his father was the mayor of uh, Philadelphia, and he was wealthy. And back in his time, not many people hired a pro. But, you know, someone just to toss him balls so he hit a topspin backhand. I was looking at some film today of uh, Djokovic from 2010 when his serve was not too efficient. And then to the following year, 2011. Maybe I'll post that up. Yeah, he spent he spends more money on his game than anybody in tennis today. Of course, he's got a few dollars in the bank. I remember he hired Todd Martin, and Todd, obviously a bright guy, runs the, uh, the uh, Hall of Fame now in Newport, Rhode Island. But, you know, he hired he hired uh, Todd Martin, and that was a period in, in time where his serve went a little bit south. Not to blame Martin, but... Um, you got to give him credit for, you know, trying different things. Mary Carrillo. Um, I, I've always enjoyed Carrillo on TV. Um, I, I did hear one junior, I won't mention any names, called called her Scary Carrillo. So once you get on TV, you have your critics. Um, it was the times, but she, to my knowledge, is the only woman who ever coached for Hopman. Um, again, you know, oh, I don't, I don't think I like Mr. Robin. Women couldn't vote till 1920. In the U.S., they couldn't have a credit card till 1970. So Harry was not making the rules up. Mm. Um, the, the, the women um, in tennis, they've always been able to uh, play tennis. 
But there wasn't, you know, women's ice hockey. There wasn't women's basketball back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, Carillo, uh, she, 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 her, her husband, she's divorced now. I think it was Bill Bowden. Um, I remember playing his doubles partner, Fernandez, longtime friend Mark Hamill was at the match. I'd like to think I won. I can't remember who actually won the match, but I remember Mary Carrillo being on a picnic table, Boca Lago, and she had a huge cast. She was out of tennis by the time she was 23. Um, but, you know, she, again, it's just like McEnroe, where, would her career in tennis have happened if Hopman didn't happen to be in New York? Mm. Um, but I was just totally committed to studying tennis. I remember Hamlin saying, how do you know who, who that is? So I tease people. They say, you know, Mary Carrillo, she watched me play an entire match. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, of course, uh, I didn't know that she was going to go on and be a, a famous broadcaster. But yeah. she, um, and, and, and that was just by circumstance as well, is that they needed a female in the booth. Got to the point where it's okay, we need to have... Um, some gender equity here. And so she was given a shot say, Hey, you, you know, you're not playing right now. Can you grab the microphone? And she mm-hmm. was uh, just an instant, instant star. Um, I think another way to say it is Hopman. He liked the New Yorkers bravado. You know, the, you know, he was obviously not in Australia and this, you know, the Australians, uh, you can get to the point. It's a fine line. Like to the Aussies, you know, you think, okay, their behavior and being so polite, but at the same time, that was not how they coached. You know, the way they would talk talk to juniors. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's some notes on the feeding. Um, you know, one one theme of Hopman is just get your racket on it. It's kind of like in baseball. You know, just get a piece of it. Yeah, just go, 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 and um, you know, it's not like okay, we're just striving for perfection don't make the feed impossible this is very very important for coaches who listen feed the drill don't feed the player right okay the player will get there the player has to adjust if the player is moving slow don't feed slow yeah and um and they don't get it they it's a line drill no no just go to the end of the line keep your nose facing forward and move move your feet while you're waiting in line your feet just never stop do you think, um, too, when he would do those type of drills, I mean, I can't, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't imagine him talking about any kind of specific footwork, you know, okay, you got to make sure you do this, this, or this crossover or mogul or whatever, you know what I mean? Because today it's like, it's very like calculated movement. I think it was just kind of like, hey, there's the ball over there, run as fast as you can. Yeah, and I think when people when, when people do that, like you know, you number one complicate it, you know. Exactly. Number one, get to the ball. Yeah. Number one, get to the ball. I, I heard a, a, a clip the other day. Um Mark Kovacs and you know he's an Aussie. He won an NCAA doubles title, highly educated, got a PhD and and uh I think the old Aussies would give him give him a shout out where he's going, well now we call it the, the decision step. There's the split step, but now we're calling it the decision step. Well, the split comes from split decision. Right, right. So I, I think there's just way too much marketing. I think that's like, okay, let's just shut up and work. Um, yeah. With, um, yeah, and we do have to say, okay, remember he's feeding balls to the, the likes of Labor Hood and Emerson. I never forget Rosewall. 
But if it was a technical session, I think if people ever had a chance to watch Bob Brett, one of his understudies who was just recently passed away, mm-hmm. um, you got to give them a rhythm in a certain situation. Lots and lots of reps. Lots and lots and lots of reps. That a muscle memory that now is called brain memory. People just knew you got to do something over and over and over again to be good at it. Yeah. When people make a mistake, instead of saying something, just feed the ball again. And if they make this mistake twice, then say something. Yeah. You know, keep them. Keep the line moving with um, more action, less talk. Yeah. Feed with every speed and every spin possible. Uh, the Hopman Cup. Um, Charlie Fancut, Paul McNamee, the founders, 1989. Uh, one man, one woman, two singles, one mix, simple format, played in Perth. It's interesting, when you meet an Australian, and they're from Melbourne or Sydney, ask them if they've ever been to Perth. And, you know, it's totally on the other side of Australia, and it's really interesting. A lot of people, I'm sure nowadays it's it's different because people travel more, but they say no. Um, with... Kind of, I guess, asking like a French Canadian from Montreal if they've been to Vancouver, mm. thousands and thousands of miles away. But Hopman, he died in '85, but '89. I mentioned we we touched upon that the pandemic uh, has has me confused. Is you know where are we with the Hopman Cup? Uh, with um, but it was founded four years after Hopman died. Uh, Lucy, his wife, attended year after year. She was treated like royalty. Um. Let's just go through a few things on Lucy, American from Massachusetts. I mentioned her last name was Pope. She lived to be 98. She went to the Hopman Cup for 26 straight years, missed the last five years due to health. Spent nearly 30 years keeping her husband's legacy alive. As I mentioned, I'm disappointed that Saddlebrook is not called Hopman's. Um, At the pro shop, um, you know, the pandemic and, and not being based in Tampa, I haven't been there in a while, but... There was the logo and the name Hopman's above uh, yeah. above the pro shop. She was the queen of the Hopman Cup. With uh, the other day, I was talking to Jack Bailey, who's a pro in Clearwater, and you know, I was just preparing some notes for this podcast. And I said, "Did you ever work for Harry Hopman?" Because a lot of people in that area did, even if it was just as a substitute, because they had these huge camps. Yeah. And he said no, but he said I was the last tennis director to work for Lucy Hobman. Mm. Um, Royal Racquet Club, 99% sure that's the name of the club in uh, Clearwater, Florida. But from just like when he left Australia, there were some negotiations, there were some adjustments being made at the Bardmore, and uh, they weren't to Harry's liking, so he bought the Royal Racquet Club. Mm. Um, he wasn't based there though, because it, it, you know, shortly, uh, you know, right during that time, it worked out for him to go to Saddlebrook, which is an amazing facility north of Tampa. Uh, Saddlebrook today, uh, interesting to ask the coaches who work for Hopman. I, I, w- I wouldn't really say okay. Ask the people who work for him as a summer coach so much, like our students did, but if people could ask, uh, you know, the the year round coaches and. Um, my, my son is a pro. Spent a lot of time with John Isner, who's based at Saddlebrook a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's the fault of the pros. It's the times. To me, and, so, and I've spent many, many 
hours at Saddlebrook, it doesn't resemble what takes place at Saddlebrook does not resemble anything, anything what Mr. Hopman mm. um, used to do. Mm. Um, I, I just don't see it. Um, what the, do you think the biggest difference is? Well, it's society. I think that. Um, but I mean, as far as things running, like, for example, what would. Well, people aren't going to run five miles before the program starts. And, yeah. you know, if you uh, miss a ball, you're you're not going to do 10 kangaroo jumps. Yeah. Um, it's just like you asked me about those uh, girls from the, the Netherlands. The first time I ever saw them feed balls, I didn't see them that much on the court because by the time um, I was observing in the seventies, my students were working in limited capacities for him in the eighties um, that, you know, he would patrol the courts one court to the next. And, you know, he would stop it to actually just see him take a group of players and feed balls mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it, it's not like, can we get water? I mean, with uh, <laughs> times have changed. I mean, there's a kid yeah. today, uh, you know, granted years ago, a kid is uh, drinking Coca-Cola, he's eating white bread, Velveeta, Velveeta cheese, he's drinking uh, water out of a hose. Mm -hmm. um, I can remember back when I was a kid, you were weak if you asked for water and they didn't give you water. And uh, then when you did get water, you were drinking water you'd wait in line and there'd be a bucket of water and there'd be one ladle. So it's like a big soup ladle. And it's like, okay, my turn. Um, you know, there's, there's so many football players from the years ago that would just tell you that, you know, one, the, the coaches didn't know better. They weren't educated in certain areas, but kids yeah. are, you know, football players are telling you, yeah, I used to want to get knocked down so I could be on the grass and be list, uh, licking the dew off the grass. Yeah. I mean, I think so what you said earlier on that, you know, they may be fitter because of programs or whatnot, you know, fitness, diet, that kind of stuff. But definitely the grit and the toughness is not there. We joke around about, you know, every once in a while we have kids pull weeds. And uh, to, to watch kids try to pull weeds. I, I do think, you know, if you say, you say different. certain things to young kids today. And, I mean, first, first of all, families are smaller. Kids are getting way too much attention. Mm. But if you say to a kid, hey, do you ever brown bag it? They won't know what it means. Yeah, what does that mean? Uh, did you get out, make a couple of peanut butter sandwiches, and you, you got two out, you got two apples, and you're good to go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we could end end with this and come back to finishing up this the next time. Uh, Harry Hopman, the 25th anniversary of the Hopman Cup. Go to YouTube, just type in tribute to Harry Hopman, and it's nine minutes long. It's uh, conducted by Rupert McCall. I mean, it's a tribute to Harry Hopman. It's awesome. So just go to YouTube, tribute to Harry Hopman, Rupert McCall. And then also just to end on that, um, there's also one on Roger Fetter. A tribute to Roger Fetter, Rupert McCall. And, you know, Fetter is in the audience. When you watch the tribute to... Um, Harry Hopman, Lucy Hopman is in the audience. It, it's just very, very well done. But a side note, like I say with Fetter, this is during the Australian Open with um, Rupert McCall doing a tribute for Roger. Uh, Roger Fetter has been greatly touched by Australian tennis. Mm -hmm. Peter Carter, mm -hmm. who 
Peter Smith from Australia, not Peter Smith from America, but um, Peter Smith taught Peter Carter, and that was his, Peter Carter was teaching tennis in Switzerland. Tony Roach was the, uh, a coach of Roger Federer. Yeah. Um, but Roger Federer, you know, he he will say that uh, his game, and he is an old school. Roger, watch Roger Federer play, and basically he's a throwback. And um, you know, for someone to be a student of tennis, uh, when you watch Roger Federer play, I mean, you have to be able to see the likes of all the great Australian players. Yeah. But um, yeah, let's uh, cut it off here, and now we can come back and just finish up. But uh, there's a lot more to be said about. Uh, Mr. Hopman, I do hope listeners, uh, by the time we're done, can just you know get a picture of uh, in their mind is like let's go to work. Yeah, you know, we, I guess we could end on today by saying, okay, your kids are going to come up and touch the net. First of all, a kid's going to come up, and sometimes they do it because they're not a happy camper. They slap the top of the net. Well, the top of the net's made out of plastic. Yeah, the net's Travis plastic. Just touch the middle of the net. And there's three ways to go back for an overhead. If it's a really easy overhead, we tell people, okay, put your left hand on the racket and turn. If it's a tougher lob, you don't put your left hand on the racket. You're like a wide receiver in American football running out for a pass, and you're making those crossover steps. If it's a super lob, you don't even look at the ball. You just turn and sprint, Mm -hmm. wait for the ball to bounce, then set your racket up for an overhead. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing, just with this episode... A lot of history in here, you know, just listening to you go through a lot of these notes, you know, just the legacy of the Australians. And and if you're really going to be in tennis to be a student of the game and know the history and all that kind of stuff, you know, to give perspective. Einstein, not the guy who invented the bagel. Einstein, if you know your subject matter, you can present it to a six-year-old. Also, if you know your subject matter, I mean, you have to know the history. Yeah. And... Um, it's not a child's fault, but, you know, today I might ask some questions. Uh, I just mentioned, we're talking, we had a new player here and talking about making some grip changes. And I said, all right, you know, who's Bill Tilden? Cause he made a grip change. Who's Don Budge? Um, labor, you know, I don't think of labor as someone who made a grip change, but, um, they did know labor. They did know labor. Um, so, um, you know, that it, um, I'll just shut up. It, here's another assignment for students of the game. I've issued this many times. Go to YouTube, punch in Jimmy Connors, yeah. Rod Laver, 1975, Caesar's Palace, yeah. and you will never use the term modern tennis again. <laughs> you will throw modern tennis out the window. Well, tennis, also, the tennis players today. Well, and also the fitness too. I mean, Laver's, you know, his legs and arms. You just see those guys were. Yeah, and Laver was semi-retired when uh, he came out, and that that was money, big time money came into the court and came into the business, ten, into tennis. I should say, Bill Reardon, Connor's agent. You know, he was promoting him like a prize fighter, and I don't think this really happened. Um, people have written about it. Is that? Rosewall, he got to the Wimbledon final in 1954 and 1974. Well, so he lost to Connors in a very convincing manner in 74. So that's, you know, late June, early July. Then he plays, you know, Labor Day time, first part of September, he plays Rosewall again in the U.S. Open. Mm. So Connors, he wins, you know, like breadsticks, 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 6-1, six, six, it was just very lopsided. Mm-hmm. 
So the story is that um, Connors came off the court and said, get me Laver. And that's where these prize money tournaments took place. I shouldn't mm-hmm. say prize money. These exhibition matches, it yeah. was supposed to be winner take all, and it came out that it wasn't. But um, so, you know, so the next thing you know, Jimbo is, you know, playing 100,000 winner take all. But if you watch that, yeah, um, I don't think you get hung up on, um, you know, okay, the modern game. And, and you know, today I, I put a post up the other day, you know, thinking about Mr. Hopman is that people uh, used to be 39-foot players. They yeah. could play baseline to the net. Most kids today, at best, they're a 10-foot player. They never get past 10 feet inside the baseline. Yeah. They're going for a $100 shot from the 10-cent position. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it's a good start. We'll come back and uh, finish up uh, the next podcast. Uh, more about Mr. Hopman. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Part one, Harry Hopman. And stay tuned for next week's episode, part two. All right, thank you. All right, thanks for listening. See you in the next one.